So the worst dad in, in black sitcom history was definitely Will's dad on the Freshman to Bel-Air. I mean, he was a deadbeat, and then he came back on Will's life with promises of lollipops and fishing trips, and then he left again. And then Will was like, why don't Ben Vereen want me, man? And then America was like, yeah, Will Smith ain't never winning an Emmy. It was easy to call a guy like that a bad dad because he possessed many of the qualities we associate with bad parenting. I mean, he was selfish. He was manipulative, he was irresponsible, he was a liar, and he wore scullies and doors. But consider the two jobs most similar to parenting, coaching and teaching. Coaches and teachers are assessed by outcomes. And if we consider Will's death through this criteria, he was actually good. Because Will's life was better in Bel Air and with Uncle Phil than it would have been with him. And isn't that what parenting is about? Putting your kid in the best circumstance possible. Okay, I, I know that's not necessarily the best example, but you know, I, I've been a dad for six years and I still don't know what defines good parenting. So I perform it. Compressing all the years of watching my parents and, and friends' parents and TV parents by creating a composite dad. And part of this performance is race-based, right? Because I'm not just a dad, I'm a, I'm a black dad. And that comes with its own expectations and realities. Now, I feel like I got, I got the black man thing down pat, you know, well, I'm, I'm getting there. <laughs> I'm getting it at least. Black dad though, I need some help. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is, this is Damon Young author of What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker and columnist for the Washington Post magazine. And welcome to Stuck, a show exploring, deconstructing, laughing at and finding community in the tension between who we are, who we're expected to be and who we want to be. It's, it's basically a purging of all the shit stuck in my head, all the shit stuck in our heads. And we'll talk about sex. We'll talk about spirituality. We'll talk about mental health, money and more. But today we're talking about my kids. Specifically, where to send my kids to school and what that decision says about me. I, I always find these uh, conversations very interesting because I feel like it's like this therapy session where folks need to talk <laughs> out why they're going to ultimately make the decision that's against their stated values. You know, these are, I'm the wrong person with which to have that conversation. Because if segregated, high poverty schools that were serving large numbers of Black kids were high achieving, it wouldn't be a fucking problem. That's Nicole Hannah-Jones, and 
you know her as the creator of the 1619 project uh she's also a pulitzer winner and i mean she's won so many awards she might even win the fucking nba dunk contest one day and i reached out to her because we both have school-aged children and we both have had to make very hard decisions about where to send them to school in today's episode it's it's just two parents talking about their kids We moved to New York when my daughter was one. If you are familiar with New York, and I would imagine other um, deeply divided cities, then you know the first conversation that people have when they find that you have a child is, "What are you? where are you going to send your child to school? What are you going to do with your child? Uh, and uniformly, the people we talked to, whether they were black or white, uh, the middle class parents we talked to said, you, can, you, know, you, you can't put your kids in a neighborhood school. You'd have to get them into, you know, one of the testing schools or private school. And um, I'm opposed to all of that. I don't believe in screening kids out, testing. I don't believe in talented and gifted. Um, And um, I don't believe in private school. So our decision, which I informed my husband of, (laughs) that this was going to be our decision, uh, was that we were going to put our child in a segregated high poverty school that I cannot write about these things. I cannot argue that our system is immoral and then play my part in it. The The point about not believing in gifted and talented, for for me, I grew up, you know, understanding and, and, and accepting that there were distinctions. And those distinctions didn't necessarily weren't necessarily based on race or cult. It was just, you know, people tested at a certain... But even as I say that to myself out loud, mm-hmm. knowing how Bingo. biased tests can be, <laughs> knowing who creates the tests, again, just saying it out loud actually makes a point about, you know, kind of throwing away the whole system. Who decides who's gifted? Do the gifted students get the, get the better teachers with the smaller classrooms? You know, and and they're segregated from the rest of the from the rest of the kids. See, I don't even have to. I don't. You you can do your own self therapy now. I I'm like the guru. <laughs> I have moved you onto the path of enlightenment. Um, I'm opposed to it on two different grounds. One, it's just a fundamentally unequal system. Um, the idea that you measure giftedness one way, uh, that if you test well. You're gifted. If you don't, you're not. Understanding that we have a completely unequal system uh, where you're testing advantage. You're not actually testing intellect or giftedness. Um, And what about a child who's gifted in art but doesn't write well or doesn't test well? Uh, I just think you can look across, and the rise of giftedness has you know, been tracked largely to desegregation, that the more racially diverse a school district is, the more gifted the white kids seem to be. Suddenly, you know, 40 to 50 percent of the population of white children is gifted. But in an all-white community, that's not the case. So fundamentally, it's just a tool of, of inequality and to ensure that you're providing a top-tier education to white kids um, at the expense of black and brown kids or higher-income kids at the expense of poor kids. Uh, for instance, in New York City, uh, you take a uh, you test into talented and gifted at four years old. Now, 
at three years old, you start getting, uh, if you're middle class, you start getting emails and flyers about a test prep for the the uh, gifted test, which leads one to wonder if it's measuring innate giftedness, how can you prep for it? Um, so it's very clear what talented and gifted has been used for. Um, but my other opposition to it is in a public system, every child is worthy of that education. Whatever education you somehow think that those who you consider to be your quote-unquote brightest students deserve, uh, your neediest students deserve that, if not more so. So I just fundamentally don't believe in a public system that you offer some kids a top-tier private school caliber education and those who we have not deigned to be smart enough or talented enough or motivated enough just get something regular. I'm just opposed to that in general. I mean, it's funny because it's probably the only thing in my life where people feel I have this this strange optimism or belief. Um, But I fundamentally believe in the idea of a common good, that that public schools are about a common good. And if that means uh, that my child will not go to a school with 24 AP classes because the only way to have equality is to offer 10 at each school, then... Get the 10, right? Like, why? Anyway, I, I, I just, I think Talented and Gifted shows how little we think of so many of our kids. That at four years old, you didn't test high enough, and so you are unworthy. And I have spent enough time talking to those kids who can't test in and who see the difference in the education that their peers are receiving and how utterly damaging that is to their psyche to think, I'm just not good enough for that. Um, I just don't think that little of our kids. Considering the decision that you made, do you have any regrets about that? Or any, maybe regrets is the wrong word, but just, I don't know, how do you feel about that? Uh, So... No, I absolutely don't have any regrets because I did not go into the circumstance with a sense of naivete. Um, I write about these types of schools for a living. I knew exactly what the struggles were going to be in making this decision. My school choice for my daughter was not how do I put my daughter in a position to go into the world and become whatever it is that she wants. Um, my decision for my daughter was, what is the best thing for our community? And how do I put my daughter into a circumstance where she will learn to be a great citizen, where she will learn um, to live in the world that exists, not the artificial bubble that I can create for her? Uh, I don't have, I clearly want my daughter to be able to fulfill whatever dreams that she has. And I understand that I can provide her whatever um, academic, social, cultural supports that she needs to do that no matter where I placed her in school. But to me, what was important was that my decision is not just about my child, that my Mm -hmm. decision is also about other people's children. And that's how I chose the school. Yeah, and that's... um... (laughs) <laughs> and and it's funny 
you know that you that you mentioned like the I guess the the fundamental difference with the framing. This really is a test of your politics, of my politics, and also the integrity of them. Because before we had children, I felt the same way. Like, you know, black families of means sent their kids to private schools or sent their kids to certain charter schools or sent their kids to schools in in more affluent districts were... I'm not going to say selling out or anything like that. But that's kind of what you're saying. That is, I mean, yeah. But I'm not going to say that mm-hmm. <laughs> because I'm talking about myself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not going to say selling out, but it's on, it's, on the, it's on the spectrum. And so I have my own children, and that has complicated things. Of course. You know, and, and also, too, again, I, I, I can't, I, I, I can't, just negate the fact that I live in Pittsburgh. And in Pittsburgh, we just don't have as many choices. And the, the schools that, the public schools in the city that are predominantly black in Pittsburgh are some of the worst performing schools in the state. That's a given. Like, that's kind of the point, right? Like, that's the easiest decision in the world for any family, but particularly black families, is to put their child in a high-achieving school. But the fact of the matter is, we know that that is not the education um, that those kids are receiving in those schools. And that is where the moral imperative exists. So, you know, you don't... To say I would love to if those schools weren't so bad, it's really defeats the whole point yeah. of, of of what we're arguing because what what you're then arguing and, and let me just be clear like I, I'm not pretending this is an easy decision it's easy to have uh, values when you don't have to live them and that I was also confronted with that reality that I was very certain of what I would and would not do before I had a child and then I had a child and I moved into New York City in one of the poorest black neighborhoods in New York City And I'm confronted with a different uh, reality because now it's not some abstract concept. And and it is the most natural thing in the world for a parent to want to protect their child and provide their child with the best. And particularly for black parents, when I understand it is a huge ask to say, you are the first person in your family to have reached a level of financial security where you can actually give your child some advantages that generationally Black people have been deprived of the ability to seek out the best for their children. And now that you finally achieve that, I'm saying don't do it. I get what I'm asking. I know how hard that is. But on the opposite side of that is, who's coming for the rest of our kids? Who's saving the rest of our kids? Like, if we won't come for our kids, if we won't throw our lot in with our folks, who will? And so ultimately what we have to decide is, are we, too, going to accept this two-tiered system for most Black kids and just play our role in that system and take what we can? Or are we going to reject that system and say, actually, I could leave, but I'm going to stay and fight in whatever little privilege I have managed to get. I'm not going to hoard that for my own child. And I, I guess fundamentally, I'm saying 
everyone is going to make the choice that he or she makes. But then you're going to have to understand there's not clean hands in that choice, though. See, I think back to my dad and my parents and, and the shit that they did. Um, you know, I started school early where I was always the youngest in my class. And then when it came to middle school, um, I was all, you know, I also was a hooper. And there was this private school in the suburbs that had this this really, like, excellent basketball team. And so when I went to that school, I repeated a grade. So I was with the people the same age. And, you know, that gave me a bit of an edge athletically and academically and socially, too. And then when I get to high school, I end up going to Penn Hills, which is, you know, it, it was a racially mixed suburban high school, you know, outside of Pittsburgh, but we lived in the city. And some someone on the team, someone's mom or dad or whatever, told about me living in the city. And so I had to leave school, finish the rest of that school year, and the whole next year at this neighborhood school, Peabody. And then my parents moved out to the suburbs, and I finished high school out there. So I guess what I'm saying is this isn't new. You know these these th- these machinations that we that we that we have to go through to figure out and decide what we're going to do for our children. And my dad, you talk to him now about all the lying and the, the forging of documents, and he has no regrets because I ended up getting a scholarship to college, basketball scholarship, and that that was his ultimate goal. But the difference, so so my parents entered me into this voluntary school desegregation program. I was bussed into white schools starting in the second grade. And actually, a, a girlfriend of mine just sent me a picture from, uh, I think it was my third grade yearbook, and I'm one of two black kids in that class, um, which, of course, comes with its own horrors. My parents were like working class folks who... They could, if they could get me into a good school, that was the only advantage they would ever be able to get me. That's not true for us. When I think about uh, my daughter's school, my daughter's school has probably one of the smallest uh, attendance zones in the city. It literally, the attendance zone is, is drawn around a housing uh, project, or at least it was until the recent rezoning. So poverty rate in the school is extremely high. And... Um, this year was the first year where um, what was happening in the classroom really tested uh, my resolve because there has been the type of non-teaching and rigor uh, that I normally see in uh, these types of schools. It was the first time I had uh, that experienced that at this school. And the way that I addressed it personally is, you know, my daughter's getting tutoring. She gets tutoring twice a week. I can provide that for her. My parents could not, and none of the parents in my daughter's school can provide that. And I I understand that the easiest thing to do in that situation is to run, is to say, you know what, I don't need, I don't have to put up with this for my child. I'm leaving. I'm going to put her in a different school. But then what happens to the other 32 children in that classroom? What do they get? What do they deserve? And if these things can happen 
with a New York Times reporter who everybody in the fucking world knows writes about school inequality and segregation, then what happens when I'm not there? And so to me, the duty is to bring whatever little power and resources I have into correcting that situation, not just for my own child, but for all of those kids, because that is the reason why we have to go into those schools. As Black people particularly, we've never been able to separate our individual fate from the well-being of the collective. That has not been our experience. And here we are in this generation where we have more freedom uh, than any other generation. And do we use that freedom in a way that helps our community or hurts it? And we can tell ourselves all kinds of rationalizations. Well, you know, I write about our people, so I'm helping. Or I donate to the Blacksonian or whatever it is that you do. But in the end, if we're not throwing our lot in with our folks where it matters most, in a way where maybe we have to give up some of that advantage in order to help our people, then we're not actually really, really doing the work. Thank you. Thank you for for all of that, really. Not just for the podcast, but just like for me. That's all right. Should... I'm going to check in with you in a year. Okay. And we'll okay, do another well... podcast and see. <laughs> <laughs> As the old civil rights song said, what, what side are you on, my friend? What uh-huh. side are you on? <laughs> What's your name? Zoe. Okay. My name is Poopy Zoe. Poopy Zoe? (laughs) That is not even a funny job. That doesn't make any sense. Knock, knock. Who's there? Potato chips. Potato chips who? Knock, knock. Wait, you're supposed to... You're supposed to say who's there. Knock, knock. Who's there? Potato chips. Potato chips who? Potato chips poop on my head. (laughs) Potato chips poop on my head? (laughs) Okay. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Hello? Hey. Hey, Day. Hey, Day. What's up? Hey, what's going on? Not much. So that's my dad. Um, You could try to call him Mr. Young, but he would correct you and tell you to call him Weeb, which has been his nickname since he was a toddler. His real name was Wilbur, but again, Weeb. And I was calling him because I, you know, I had some questions about the decisions that him and my mom made when making whatever moves they made to decide where to send me to school when I was a kid? Well, you know, we were not of the uh, private Catholic school 
genre, you know, n- neither one of our families, okay? And uh, even though I, you know, grew up with kids who, who had gone to um, private Catholic schools, but um, your mom was a little, you know, she was, uh, she wasn't too enthused about it, okay? Why not? But, well, um, I, I, I think she was just, you know, what's wrong with the Pittsburgh school system? Well, what I had to explain to her really was you were, you were coming along as a young basketball player and you needed to be in a program where you could develop your skills. The public school system did not have that type of program for young athletes in your age group. However, the day that we walked into St. Bart's for the interview, your mom and I were sold right there in the lobby. The entire lobby <laughs> had a Black History Month display. <laughs> and there were about how many black kids in the school at, at that time? Maybe, what, 10? I mean, there, there was probably a few more. Let me think. It was K. It was K through eight. So I'd say between like twenty five and thirty. Okay, like but you were. But, but still, that's not. Still that's not. A, that's yeah. That's still not. Not a lot of black kids at all. Yeah. Right. You were still a minority, and 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 the St. Bart's had gone all out for that um, display, and it's like wow. <laughs> uh, the Black History Month. Black History Month. <laughs> the posters, <laughs> the posters MLK posters, pictures, uh, everything. <laughs> I was like, okay. "Wow, okay." <laughs> I mean, they could they could have just put that up there. Just they knew they knew y'all were coming. They're like, you yeah, know what? Maybe. Let me let me put a let's let's get these pamphlets. <laughs> let's get these uh, pictures of MLK, and Malcolm X, and Patrick yeah. Douglas, Harry Tubman. They, yeah, then take them down the next day. Yeah, but. Uh, yeah, I was really impressed about that. And then once you got into the system, um, obviously, you know, they had a had a superior educational system. Yeah, that was one of the best moves your mom and I ever made, enrolling you at St. Bart's. What were the social and academic benefits? Okay, another, another advantage, Damon, another reason for taking you out of public school, it, it just wasn't, I didn't feel it was all that safe. I didn't feel comfortable at that time, okay? You know, at that time with, you know, the Crips and the Bloods and, and, and all of that, and, you know, this carried over into the schools as well, okay? And I just didn't trust the public school system at that time in terms of security. So that, and that's a part that I never thought about. In fact, I don't think we ever talked about that aspect of it. We're talking early 90s, 90, 91, and this is the time when gangs started getting very, you know, very violent in the right. city. You know, you know, you and I have talked about, you've mentioned all that time that we spent together during that period in your life. Mm-hmm. And that was the main reason, David. <laughs> that was the main reason. You know, I wanted people to see that you had somebody around. Okay, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. You, you had you had a protector. Okay, you you had somebody. I was afraid. <laughs> I was afraid every time you stepped out the house, Damon. Now, when we've had conversations about um, you know the decisions that you made about my schooling, I didn't 
that part was never a part of the conversations that we had about it, but it makes sense because of the time we lived in, because of where we were living, um, to, you know, even though I, I still came home every day, but just yeah. to be able to get me, you know, away from there for, you know, a few hours every day, though, um, and it's something that I don't think we've, we've ever really talked about before either, is like, you know, I, I got my racial awareness or consciousness from from you and mom when i talk to other people you know who you know and talk about their experiences of their parents and sometimes you hear their parents maybe press them to to assimilate or to flatten their identity flatten themselves or to code switch or to do all these things to like all all, all these sorts of behavioral deodorants that you can apply to appease white people and you never did that did you consider the racial implication or the racial like effect of you removing me from a neighborhood school with, you know, a lot of black kids into a school where I would be one of the only black kids? No, I didn't have a problem with that because in terms of your identity, in terms of who you were, okay, you got that at home. What you needed most and what kids need most they get at home and you got that at home. Okay. Now in terms of when I talk about identity, I mean, in terms of being an African American, we had to have that conversation. Okay. You know, I, I grew up in small town USA in the North, always in a minority and I went to school in the South, an HBCU, and my whole outlook changed <laughs> overnight. Okay, it changed overnight. It so, really did. so going from coming from Newcastle, PA, and going to Knoxville College in Tennessee, how? I mean, I, I can imagine, but how? Like, what changed? First of all, I'd never seen so many black people assembled at one place at one time. And these were just freshmen from Alabama and Mississippi and Tennessee and North Carolina, you know, Florida, mostly Southern kids. Okay. And one of the things I realized in my freshman year was how far behind I was compared to them, those kids from who had gone to segregated black schools. Okay. They were actually further ahead of me, not in terms of academics, but their social consciousness. Okay. And it was my roommate, John Gilmore, who broke this down to me. He said, Reed, when you were going to school in Newcastle, Pennsylvania, and you were being in a, in a you know, basically mostly, you know, 90% white school system. I said, those teachers were telling you everything that you couldn't do. And my teachers in Athens, Georgia, who were black teachers, were telling us everything that we could do. <laughs> and that was the difference. <laughs> that was the difference. When Stokely Carmichael came to our college and spoke one Sunday afternoon 
in the gymnasium. It was packed. When I walked out of that gymnasium that day, I remember saying to myself, I am no longer a nigger. <laughs> I am no longer a nigger. I am not a nigger. I am not a nigger. I am a proud black man. That's what I am. I am a proud black man. I wanted to pause for a bit right here because my dad, my dad just used the wrong word. Like when he said that he was no longer a nigger, what he meant to say was nigger with a hard R. Because my dad is definitely a nigger. In fact, he's the one who taught me how to say it. But not a nigger. Yes, I was affected. I had an inferiority complex when I was young. Growing up in the type of atmosphere I grew up in Newcastle, I didn't have a black coach until I went to college. I didn't have a black um, instructor until I went to college. You know, you know, and, and hearing all that, you're talking about you experiencing this, like, this racial awakening. I, I do come back to the choice of taking me out of a school with more black kids and putting me into a school with um with that is predominantly white and all the teachers are white but when i went to predominantly white schools kids weren't bringing weapons to school okay that was never a concern the only people i were afraid of when i was a kid weren't even real the wolf man the frankenstein <laughs> <laughs> the creature from the black lagoon i said those are the people who i was afraid of but just regular people, no, I wasn't afraid of them. You weren't afraid of white people? No, no. You know, well, I wasn't afraid of white people, Damon, because I had all these black people behind me. Well, you know, you know what? what I mean? Yeah, that's, I, I, let me reframe that question. Um, <laughs> you were aware of, of, of white people and what white people, you know, were doing and were capable of doing. And so did you feel any, like, sort of, like... I don't know, anxiety or whatever, being black in a, in a predominantly white school or in a predominantly white you know, no. Um, city? No, no, you, you know, no, no. Well, no, no, I never felt, I never felt like I was, um, I was under any threat or anything, okay? Um, number one, Damon, I had a big family. Mm-hmm. I had all these brothers and cousins and uncles and so on. And I knew that I had all those people behind me, okay? So I wasn't afraid of anybody, okay? I wasn't afraid of anybody because I knew that, well, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're coming after me, you know, those all these people right here behind me, you're going to have to deal with them too, <laughs> okay? Well, Dad, I mean, you know, as we... You know, we get to that time when we are going to make the decision about where Zoe and Levi go to school. I mean, we're not rich or anything like that, but we can we can afford tuitions and we could send them to private schools and we could we could do all of that. So what would you do if you were in our position? If I were in your position, <laughs> if I were in your position. I would send them to the school where you think 
they would be that would be most advantageous to that child. Okay, and at this point, at this point, okay, I would be leaning towards a private school. Why? Well, I, I think they would be. I think it. I think it would be more advantageous to them. Really, I think it would be more advantageous to them in terms of the school atmosphere. Thank you for for, oh, you're for, welcome. for that, and thank you for this. Okay, <laughs> for this I, conversation. I, enjoyed con- I enjoyed the conversation. Okay, I'll be talking to you. Wear your mask. I got my mask. All right, love you. Love you too. Bye bye. Adult life is this never-ending festival of interconnected micro-conflicts, a circus of plain choices, of easy choices, made hard by simple and complicated desires. And the more I choose the things I believe I should do, the more adult I feel, the more grown. But what makes this conflict about where to send my kids to school so fucking incomprehensible is a lack of clarity, an absence of lines. I don't know what I should do. But I know what I'm going to do. Nicole made a compelling case for the integrity of our politics. I just don't agree. I mean, I, I will continue to scour the city for a school that provides my children the best of both worlds. But if one doesn't exist, and I have to choose between high-performing and predominantly white, and low-performing but predominantly black, I will choose the high-performing school. I mean, I... I don't know what that says about my commitment to my culture and and my community, but you know what? I don't think I care because it's not about me. Knock, knock. Who's there? Lizard, lizard. Lizard, lizard who? Lizard poop on your butt and potato chips poop on your butt. <laughs> Lizard poop on my butt and potato chips poop on my butt. That doesn't even make any sense. I don't. This is this is not funny at all. Joe. This is. I don't. I don't. I don't get it. Stuck with Damon Young is a Spotify original podcast from Gimlet and Crooked Media. It's hosted and written by me, Damon Young. Ruben Davis is our executive producer. Our producers are Ashley Belez, Morgan Moody, Carlton Gillespie, Priscilla Alabi, Stephen Hoffman, and Corinne Gilliard. Mixing and sound design by Jesse Nas, Charlotte Landis, and Veronica Simonetti. Theme music and score by Open Mike Eagle. From Crooked Media, our executive producers are Tanya Sominator, Sarah Geismer, and Katie Long. From Gimlet, our executive producers are Rosie Guerin, Crystal Hall Stressler, Colin Campbell, and Lydia Polgreen. 